0: And that chorus we just sang is exactly appropriate for the passage of Scripture that our Lord will be opening to us this morning. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We have come up the mountain. Jesus ascended the mountain ahead of us. And he took his seat as the rabbi does. The rabbi sits in the audience, the congregation stands. He has taken his seat and now the congregation, the people have come up to hear from him. His disciples have ascended the mountain. Disciple is just a word meaning learners, those who are pursuing him and he is laying out what are what is the what are the parameters what is the landscape for walking with our lord and he says this beginning in verse 38 <clears throat> you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you, but i tell you do not resist an evil person But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do not do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be... Therefore, you shall be... Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What is God like? What is God like? the God who discloses himself to us in the Bible is not the God that the human race would, by its deformed logic, consider God to be. Look at the pagan gods that exist by the hundreds of millions. Yes, you heard that right. There are, just amongst the Hindus, 300 million Gods and goddesses. And a man who grew up in India has been reaching out to Hindu people in ministry since the 1950s, was in our church a few years ago, and I asked him, are there any even supposedly good Hindu gods and goddesses? Oh, no! No! Hinduism is extortion. You either provide the offerings, you either do what those gods and goddesses say, or they harm you. None of them are good and no Hindu would tell you they are. Where do we get the word God, the English word God? Where does it come from? It's the word good compressed down. He is the good deity, and that over the centuries got pressed down to God. He's good. He has all power, unrestrained. You can't even contest him. And he's wise in his choices, in the administration of his power. He always is walking in wisdom. What are we? Well, left to ourselves, we are descendants of Adam, and in Adam we all die. We, The Bible says we were actually in Adam when he chose to rebel against God we were born with a sinful bent nature bent against god towards rebellion and there was not even in our religious acts even if they had the veneer of christianity on them until we came to faith in jesus christ that's all it was was just a veneer in fact it was offensive to god it stunk to him But God remedied the situation. God remedied the situation. We couldn't. God the Son became a man. Fully a man. Lived a perfect life as only he could. He was born without a fallen nature. He is fully God as well as being fully man. And he lived that perfect life, demonstrating, as he says earlier in in the Sermon on the Mount, I kept the law. I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And he kept the law. None of his worst enemies could even find something to accuse him of. And he went to the cross As that sinless Lamb of God, taking the burden of our sins upon himself. He took our place. That cross was what we deserved. But by the eternal nature of his being, he was able to pay sin's penalty for the entire human race. A penalty that would have fallen upon the human race eternally fell upon him this eternal being in the space of a few hours on that cross and he was able to say it is finished it is paid in full we're going to come to the conclusion of this meeting at the lord's table this cup is the new covenant the new contract in my blood i'll take that contract because in Jeremiah 31, the contract is described where God says, I will make a new covenant with you, not like the one made on Sinai, which was all about your performance, which you blew <laughs> big time. In this new covenant, I will, I will, I will. Your sins and iniquities remember no more. That's the deal I needed. And so, likewise, every other member of the human race. And so, entrusting ourselves to Jesus' work, we step into this place of welcome with God. But it doesn't stop there. He now says to us, I am going to use you as an instrument of my peace, my shalom in this world. I am going to make you like me. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a big difference between you, God, in all of your holiness and me. Even though I'm forgiven, how can I be that holy instrument? Answer, because I will equip you and guide you for it. And Jesus tells us in John 14, he says in the upper room to the apostles after Judas is left, the Holy Spirit who has been with you doing all these miraculous things will be in you. And so the energy needed to be able to do God imitating acts will be dwelling within you and I will supply my direction to you via my word and my presence And so the Apostle Paul is able to say authentically, be imitators of God as beloved children. Folks, if that doesn't take your breath away, you're not in touch. but he makes it a live possibility for us. And so Jesus says here, beginning in chapter 538 of Matthew's gospel, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, where does that come from? That comes from the law of God. Now, normally when we have heard that expression, by the way, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life, That's the law of Moses. Now that strikes our ears, and usually it's quoted to us with that tone of voice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Did you know that when the Lord said that through Moses, the Hebrew people were shocked? They weren't shocked by its crass, gruff, difficult nature. No, just the opposite. You mean it will be just pure justice? An eye for an eye, whatever I cost the person I victimized or harmed, I will be asked to render no more than it cost them? Yeah. Well, see, folks, that was not the way the law worked in Egypt. That wasn't the way where they had come from. That wasn't the way the oldest law system that we have and you may have heard of this way back in elementary school the code of Hammurabi it's really replicated in Sharia law of Islam you steal a loaf of bread they take your hand off let me ask you a question what's the value of a human hand through a person's life versus a loaf of bread that's not equal that's not justice But that was the law of Hammurabi. That was the law the way it was in Egypt. It's retributive, it's way beyond justice. So when they heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I cost somebody by my negligence, I cost them a tooth. They will not take more than one of my... They won't take all my teeth. That's what Egypt would have said. They would just take one. And so it strikes our ear very strong, yeah, you know, very definitely, mean, mean, mean. No, they heard it just the opposite. One problem, though, is that they took that law and they were using that law in their interpersonal relationships, not in the, in the legal system. And so... A lot of the Jewish people were justifying their behavior. There was no even attempt at forgiveness, at kindness. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall, excuse me, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. When somebody does something evil to you, you don't say it's not evil. But in your interpersonal relationships, I'm going to tell you to do what God would do. If you but ask for it, forgive. Forgive. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, see, in the, in the Roman world that Jesus and these people are living in and all these cultures, the tunic was what you wore underneath. The cloak was what you wore on the outside. That was what we would call the heavy overcoat. And they were expensive, and normally, a normal person, if they had a cloak at all, they had one. And if you had a job out in the fields as a shepherd or something, you would take your cloak. And it was designed to protect you from the elements. So that if you were out in the fields overnight with the flock or with the herds, you wrapped yourself in that cloak and that's how where you what you slept in. It protected you. And so if you... If somebody sues you to take away your tunic, and in fact, the law forbid somebody to sue you for your cloak because it was considered too important. You can't take away a man's cloak. You can take his tunic. You can take what's underneath, the fancy stuff. But man, that cloak, that's not something you're allowed to take. And Jesus is saying, don't just give them your tunic. Give them what they think they wouldn't even dare to ask for. Well, isn't that what God has done? Would we have dared gone to have gone before the holy God who was offended by our sin and said to him? Holy God, I have a suggestion to solve my sin problem before you the guilt of my sin why don't you become a man and pay the penalty for me why don't you allow yourself to be nailed to a cross and pay sin's penalty we wouldn't even (laughs) know but that's what he did he did what was well beyond any expectation we might have considered If someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. In the Roman world, Roman soldiers had the right to force you to carry their pack. If you happen to be out walking along the country road and here comes a troop of Roman soldiers, one of those soldiers could step off the the track, grab you by the elbow and say here i'm giving putting my pack on you and you were legally required to carry that pack one mile and so what's jesus and can you imagine the anger of the fellow forced to carry that roman soldiers pack? they hate the roman soldiers to begin with but now i've got to carry this guy's pack a mile When you've completed the first mile, then you turn to that soldier and say, hey, how about if I do another mile carrying your pack? What? That's unexpected. Tom Skinner. Back in the mid-1950s was a young man, teenager, In Harlem, he was the head of the biggest gang in Harlem, the Harlem Lords. And one day, uh, he was listening to a rock and roll station. He's got his radio. He's looking for a rock and roll station. And I mean, he is a black guy, black guy, black guy. I mean, and his he's going across the radio dial, and he hits this white cracker Southern guy preaching the gospel. And he couldn't change the station. He just got glued to it. And he heard the gospel and became a Christian, listening just to that one message on the radio. Well, as the head of the Harlem Lords, they're a street gang. They are into fights, rumbles, as we used to say back in the 50s and 60s. And I don't know when they stopped saying that. Maybe they haven't. He went to the next meeting that he was, the, he was the leader of the gang. And he stood before the gang leaders and said, I am resigning my position because I've become a Christian. You know what the penalty was in their unwritten rule book? You can't do that. We will kill you. But he did. He stood in front of this group of young guys, his own age. I'm resigning. I'm leaving because I've become a Jesus follower. And he walked out of that meeting, and he was shocked because he expected those guys to jump up and kill him on the spot. And about a week later, he got isolated with one of these guys, and he said, how come you guys didn't jump out of your seats and kill me? And he said, we tried. We couldn't get out of our seats. Something was holding us in our seats. And a few weeks later, he's involved in a football game. On this team he's on, it's all black guys. and the other team, it's all white guys. And he is on the offensive line on the end. And they call the play, and he blocks out the defensive end. And the halfback who's behind him runs and scores a touchdown. And to play. He starts to head back towards the huddle, and this guy that he had blocked out runs up to him and punched him in the gut and then pounded him on the back and then kicked him. This is a big guy. He later was the chaplain in the, in the 60s for the Washington Redskins, talking about Tom Skinner. He gets up off the ground, and this guy who did all that was a white guy. And the guy had said, you damn nigger, I will punish you for what you did. And he got up off the ground and he looked that guy in the face and he said, I love you and Jesus loves you. And then he walked back to the huddle. After the game was over, that other player came to him and said, you knocked more racism out of me with those words than if you had punched me in the face. What was he doing? He was imitating God Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, if you you shall love your neighbor. That is a command in the Hebrew Scriptures. The hate your enemy part, that's not commanded. But what does Jesus say? You have heard that it was has been said, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did they hate your enemy? Well, you know, Jesus doesn't ask, God God doesn't ask us to do impossible things, you know. Sure, I can love the guy in the house next to me, and, you know, I can, I, can, I can do that. But if somebody is my enemy, he certainly doesn't expect me to love my enemies. And so if you notice in your Bible, many of you that have your own Bibles with you, it says, You shall love your neighbor, and that's an italics because it's a quote from the Old Testament, but the rest of it is not an italics because it's what the Jewish people added later. But that, that means i I only have to I only have an obligation to the guy in this house and the guy in that house. Everybody else is not part of that command. No. It means everybody. I say to you, love your enemies as Tom Skinner did. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven that you may be replicas of God. When we say someone is a son of something, we are saying they are a reflection of whatever it is we add on the end. We are to be sons, replicas of our Father in heaven. He doesn't hate his enemies. He serves his enemies. One of the most striking things, I think, in the entire Bible is that in the upper room, when Jesus washed the feet of the twelve, it included Judas Iscariot. He was still there. And Jesus knew he was, had already initiated the process of putting him on a cross. And yet Jesus washes his feet. What is our love to look like? Well, what does God's love look like? It's interesting that if, and by the way, the word that is used here and many places in the New Testament is the word agape. It is the word used for God's love. In nearly every single instance in the New Testament where you have the Greek word agape is attached to Jesus' work on the cross. The most famous verse in our New Testaments, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What did He do out of His love? He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. First John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the payment for our sins. You've got love and you've got the cross. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love, agape, toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And if we walk in imitation of Him, we will be like him. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, replicas of him. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He caused the sun to rise on Caiaphas and Annas, who put Jesus on the cross, he caused, he allowed rain to fall. He allowed. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God has put a good. He has put the human race in a good place, so that we can say, "Oh, the same God who supplies to me." The crops, the sun, the rain, he has also supplied to me his son to pay sin's penalty for me. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors, the most disreputable people in their culture, do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, if you're very selective, okay, these are the people with whom I will have a good relationship. Everybody else is off limits and is my enemy, essentially. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors, again, the most despised people, do the same. By the way, the author of this gospel, Matthew what was he? Tax collector. tax collector. I think he probably remembered. He's one of the 12. He probably remembered every tax collector reference Jesus ever made. <laughs> he's got more of them than anybody else. Therefore, you shall be perfect. I'm sorry, folks. God doesn't cut us any slack. He doesn't say, okay, you're living up to this standard and you're living up to a lower standard. No, the standard is the standard is the standard. But he supplies us what we need to live up to his standard. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. A book, well, this event probably happened about a hundred years ago an account related by Dr. Harry Ironside, who died in the 50s. So it was probably about 100 years ago. He was at a mission hospital, visiting a mission hospital. This is a man who was a renowned Bible teacher. He was the pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Third grade education. You can fill a bookshelf this wide with the books that he wrote third grade education. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. He was at the Presbyterian Mission Hospital in Ganado, Arizona, and he met a poor Navajo woman. She had been there for several months. She had been in the process of dying, and so her family just said, well, she's about to die. Let's just get her out of the out of this place and they put her out in the reservation they just put her out she was found after three or four days of exposure and brought to the mission hospital not expected to live but after three or four days of intense 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 work by a mission doctor and the Navajo nurses she turned a corner and after nine weeks of being cared for in the Mission Hospital, <clears throat> she began to wonder at the good care she had received. And she said to one of the Navajo nurses, I, don't, I can't understand it. Why did the doctor do all that for me? He is a white man and I am an Indian. I never heard of anything like this before. This is a hundred years ago. The Navajo nurse said, you know, it's the love of Christ that made him do that. And she said, who is Christ? Tell me more about him. And so the gospel was explained to her. And the staff prayed for her. And several for several weeks this went on where they're explaining and praying. And finally, one of the nurses said to her, Can't you trust this Savior and turn away from the idols you've worshipped and trust Jesus as the Son of God? And right at that moment, the doctor, the white doctor who had spent so much effort on her recovery, walked in. And she said, if Jesus is anything like the doctor, I can trust him forever. Now, I dare say that doctor... (laughs) would have said, uh... But what had happened? He was available to Jesus for Jesus' use in that woman's life. He was an imitator of God in her life. He had walked before him from what she could see. He was a living replica Of the God who had sent his son to pay sin's penalty for her. And it was the cause of her saying, yes. If Jesus is like him, I can trust him. Now we're coming to the Lord's table. And Jesus is saying to us, I've done for you what you couldn't possibly do for yourself. As we take the bread, this is my body broken for you. As we drink the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That commemorates that initial miracle that brings us into relationship, authentic, welcomed relationship with the Holy God. But do not forget what the Holy Spirit showed you today in repeating Jesus' words. That puts you in the place where you now can be filled with His Spirit and walk as God replicas Now, folks, that's gigantic. But it is what he has made a live possibility. The only hindrance, the only thing that gets in the way of it is us being willing to yield to him for that usefulness.